Ad Arn Westad, welcome to China Talk. Thank you. Good to be with you. Empire and Righteous Nation, 600 years of China-Korea relations done in under 200 pages. So why write this book? For once, I had to do a relatively short book. Most of my books have been overly long, and I thought it would be a good idea to try to deal with a very big topic in a relatively small number of pages. But seriously, I, I always like to do something on China and Korea because it's such a misunderstood relationship overall. And uh, this, was, this started with a set of lectures that Harvard invited me to give a couple of years back. And then I thought, let me see if I can develop this into a book for a more general audience in, in terms of understanding that relationship in the long durée. So I'm curious, one of the big questions, and obviously you've been a longtime scholar of the Cold War, of China relations. Do you have to have decades of historical knowledge to be able to condense this kind of complex history down to 175 pages? Nah, not really. You, you have to look at it in terms of those parts of it you don't know much about from before and then try to synthesize it into a bigger framework. But no one can expect anyone to be an expert on 600 years of, of history, particularly in this case, because it involves two countries and the relationships between them and how these have changed over a very long period of time. So this is a work of synthesis. It is about trying to understand what the big lines are, what the key issues that determine how we look at Sino-Korean relations today are. And I'm particularly preoccupied in this book which trying to look at this, not just in the bigger picture, but in terms of what really has an impact on what the situation is like today. So I want this book to be something that would be on the reading list for people who have to deal with inter-Korean relations or North Korea's nuclear capacity or the relationship between North Korea and Beijing today, and not just people who are interested in Ming history. I hope it works for them as well, but you know, I think it would be particularly useful if this could also work for people who have very contemporary preoccupations. So I'd before we dive into the actual argument and the text itself, I'm curious, obviously you've written a number of books on Ming history and Chinese history in general. Was this book particularly hard to draft given the smaller scale of the length of the text? It was hard to try to condense it, to try to make sure that it remained a, a short book. I think that was the real challenge here. But it was also a challenge in terms of structure because in order to be able to do that, you cannot do a chronological history of, of 600 years. So you have to be driven by the things that you think really matter in the broader sense. And you always have to look forward to our own time. You have to do all of that without becoming deterministic. So the, the past, as listeners will know, doesn't necessarily determine just one direction. There are always many openings many possibilities, many chances of things going in a very different direction. So you have to be aware of that on the one hand, uh, of that complexity. But you also have to say, hey, there are some reasons why this ended up the way it ended up and point forward to the kind of predicaments that we have with regard to Korea today. So that was the challenge in a way. All right. So let's jump into it. Why start 600 years ago? So mainly because that's when both China and Joseon Korea went through a very significant transformation. Best to understand it as a kind of revolution with the start of the Ming Empire in China and the start of Joseon in, in Korea. It happens roughly at the same time, the end of the 14th century. And it happens within a framework that is not identical, but broadly similar. So an introduction of neo-Confucian forms of thinking in terms of how to construct a state and reconstruct society. 
So the emphasis on a set of issues in, ter in terms of social and, and ideological political preoccupations that were very similar in the two countries. And in many ways, even though there you know, are many centuries and, and, and many millennia of, of interaction across what we now see as the Sino-Korean border before the end of the 14th century, this is when this really close relationship, close to the extent that it's sometimes really difficult to figure out what is Chinese and what is Korean really begins. It begins with this ideological project of setting things right, that the people back then saw it, in terms of a new form of Confucian rectitude. I hope our listeners have some sense of what Ming China looked like, but I had much less of a sense going into your book of what the Choson state looked like. So how important was Chinese influence to the way that they ran their government and society? So I'm not so sure... Uh, how much of it was actually Chinese influence and how much of it was what you could deem a kind of common culture or even common sets of political ideologies through Confucianism. Because Koreans had been reading Confucius and the comments on Confucius, and particularly these guys in back in the 10th and 11th century in China during the Song era, who had been writing about how to construct the ideal society based on Confucius principles. They've been reading that for a very long time, to the extent that they had internalized it, to quite some extent. They didn't see it necessarily as coming from China. The, the example that I often use is that all of us now have, whether we understand it or not, some kind of relationship through science and technology to the principles of relativity. But we don't spend much time thinking about this actually coming out of a German scholar who, who developed this in the Albert Einstein, developed this in the early part of the 20th century. That's not the key to us. And I think the idea about Confucianism almost as a kind of science of society, science of man, was something that was seen as, as part of a common heritage back then. So China was central to it, of course, and the, the you know Koreans did see that when they set up the Joseon kingdom. But they also re regarded this heritage as being very much Korean. And along this line, I mean, uh, one of the things that actually surprised me in the book is was the title, because it, it called Empire and Righteous Nation. But you actually spend a few pages of a 175-page book defining exactly what these terms mean and why they're so important in this context. So I, I'd love for you to go through what, starting with righteousness, maybe, because that's most relevant to the kind of neo-Confucius ideology that was parlaying between China and Korea, but then also empire and nation. What were those definitions and why were they so important to the history? So the, the title is a little bit tongue in cheek. I, I don't mean to say, of course, that all Koreans are, are righteous or that righteousness is a particular mm -hmm. sort of Korean principle. And neither do I argue that it is the relationship between empire and non-empire that has always been at the center of China-Korea relations. But the reason why I spent so much time in a short book dealing with this to begin with is that I think it's important to get some of the possible definitions, some of the possible discussions in terms of identification of these terms right. Because what is really important in this book is that in spite of this ideological origin that is very much common, you know, to the two. The state formations that come out of it, empire on one side and a, and a somewhat inward-looking kingdom on the other, those are very different, and they behave in very different ways. Empires behave in very different ways from what I argue in the book in the Korean case, and this is perhaps one of the more controversial aspects of this, is on its way to becoming what we today would understand as a nation-state. So those are, are two very different, two very different understanding, understandings of the political project 
that these people are, are involved in. And righteousness is important both because it is a very important neo-Confucian principle. If a ruler and a political system is not righteous in the sense that it is based on eternal values of how the relationship between the ruler and the population should be, and on a certain set of ideas of justice going up and down the ladder in terms of, of, of political power and influence, if it's not based on that, then it doesn't really have any value. And the Koreans during the Joseon era, the Korean elites, perfectioned this in, in a way that I don't think has been seen in, in East Asia before and since. They wanted to make out of their country, out of their state, an exemplary society that made use of these Confucian values, righteousness especially, in ways that went even beyond what the Chinese had been able to do. So it was, if you'd like, this was Korea's claim to fame, that it cultivated at least some parts of the Confucian canon to a higher degree than even the Chinese were able to do. So that's the reason, I think, why I use these categories and why they are so important to explain at the beginning of the book. And uh, I'm curious about that kind of continuation, because on one hand, Korea wanted to continue the new Confucian legacy in its own kind of geography and, and tries to perfect it. And, and really, by, I, I want to say, the 1800s or 1900s, believes that it's actually holding the the best of Confucian thought locally better than the Chinese themselves where it originated. But I'm curious, to what extent do you think Korea as this sort of national political project is continuous throughout this period of time? Is it just an evolution of a group of people or can we break it up into subsections over time? There are, of course, changes over time. In spite of the regime, the Korean regime, the Joseon regime, trying to argue that in many ways it's eternal and never changing because it is based on the correct principles. But there are significant changes. Some of those happen roughly at the same time in China, by the way, as they happened in Korea. By the end of the 16th century, roughly coinciding with these momentous events in terms of warfare and, and conflict between the states in Eastern Asia, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit later on. But there is there is also a crisis of faith in a way. Our people are starting to argue that just basing the whole political system and the value system within politics and society on a set of Confucian principles isn't enough, that the development of practices and technologies that serve people better in their daily day is of equal importance to what takes place in terms of the Confucian mental universe. When the conflict between these states, between the Ming developments in China and then the Qing that takes over there, the Joseon and the Japanese, who of course come in very forcefully by the end of the of the 16th century. Roughly at the same time as that happens, there is also this sense that it has to be developed in a different kind of way in terms of how people view the relationship between themselves and the kind of society they engage in. So that's perhaps the most important breaking point in this story until we get to the 20th century, which I deal with in the, in the final uh, two chapters, really, of the book. Uh, which is about the internationalization of the whole region and the appearance of other of other uh, powers within the region. There is change, but it changed on the background of a particular set of beliefs or even set of events leading up to the late 16th century, which I think point in a certain direction for the people who were involved. 
And then I want to go on this uh, concept of the nation, because I, I think one of the parts that was particularly interesting on the Chozon side, less than the, the Chinese side, was this concept of you know, the nation state, which in Europe comes out in, in the 1800s with the Westphalian system. But if we look at it from the antecedents in Korea, it has a lot of the same components. It has a, a particular geography, a particular people, uh, a particular culture. You emphasize in the book, even food holds this uh, kind of group of people together. How much is it good to project backwards and say, look, there's there is essentially a nation state here. And it's actually a nation state that starts arguably in the 1400s, maybe even earlier than that. Is it appropriate to do that? Is it useful as an analytical lens to understand Korea better with using that kind of tool? I think one has to be very careful in doing it so that it doesn't become entirely anachronistic. The nation, as we think about it today, and I discussed this in the book, is very much a 19th century European invention. And one should be careful, I think, with making use of that term and the related terminology in order to explain something that happened in Korea 300 years earlier. But even so, there are striking parallels and similarities. And that's what I want to make use of in the book. And that's the reason why I used the concept nation in the first place, is that whatever you can say about a nation, it's not an empire. The emphasis that you find in Korea, that you already pointed out, to cohesiveness in in ways that are pretty similar to what we in the 20th century got used to calling ethnic ethnic similarities. Those are quite striking. While on the Chinese side, so both in the Ming and the Qing Empire, they would have been impossible. Right? And the, an empire, uh, by its very nature, consists of many different peoples, many different groups. That's its raison d'etre. That's why an empire is there. And this leads to some of the difficulties in the relationship as well, because it's very hard from a Ming or Qing perspective to see that form of legitimacy develop on the Korean side. There is always a suspicion, I think, in the imperial capital that Korea and Koreans are trying to be something that is a little bit too unique. From Beijing, they are seen as a vassal of the empire, not inside the empire, but very closely related to it. While from the Korean perspective, there's the perspective they are really saying, we are unique. We are different from anything that happens elsewhere within the region. And there is a, a consciousness with regard to that already in the 16th century that I find really striking. So before we get up to the Qing, I don't want to skip the Imjin War. What was it and why did it matter? So this was really an attempt by uh, a set of Japanese rulers to try to remake the international framework for East Asia or even Eastern Asia by questioning the legitimacy of the Ming Empire. I think the best way of understanding it is from a Japanese perspective, relatively suddenly, there was this idea that Japan could somehow replace the central role that the Ming Empire had for quite a while within the region and do by waging war. The idea was to wage that war inside the Ming Empire itself, but for reasons that I explain in the book, it never got much further than a war between Ming, China, and Japan in Korea with devastating consequences. And going back to the last question, what I do in this book, building on the work of many other historians of Korea who made this argument before me, is that the tremendous pressure that Korean society came under as a result of this savage warfare on its territory, was to push further in the direction of seeing Korean uniqueness. But uniqueness now almost as a kind of suffering, 
right? That Korea was unique because it was trying to uphold Confucian righteousness within the framework of this tremendous pressure by two great powers that fought over it and destroyed its country. And you will hear echoes of that again when you fast forward to the 20th century and the Korean War and to some extent, even after today. Yeah. So what happens when the Ming falls? Well, the most important thing in this relationship, what, what, what I'm looking at here with the, with the collapse of the Ming, is, of course, a deep uncertainty in Joseon, in Korea, about how to handle the new guys who, who come into power, the, the Qing Empire. Uh, and the Qing Empire, of course, originates with a band of people of various ethnic backgrounds, various original loyalties, in what is today the maritime provinces of Russia and in, in northeastern China, what we know as Manchuria. They call themselves by different names, but it's basically a political project to take over Ming China and replace it with a new Qing empire. So in that sense, it's not entirely different, in fact, from what the Japanese were trying to do, but only that it came from a different starting point. And this is, of course, a problem in Korea because the... Korean loyalty relationship, based on a shared ideology, Neo-Confucianism, the link to the Ming, goes back, as we have explained, to the late 14th century. And it's very hard, suddenly, to replace that with the same kind of relationship, a reciprocal relationship, but one that recognizes Korea as a vassal of the Qing, to, to, to put that in the place of the Ming relationship all of a sudden. Because where's the righteousness in that, right? That on the Chinese side of the border, you can suddenly replace one dynasty with another and say, you guys owe us the same kind of uh, submission that you did to the old regime. And this becomes really tricky for Korean leaders all the way up uh, to the collapse of the, of the Qing in 1911-1912. Is the Qing empire legitimate? Is submission to this kind of empire as a vassal legitimate? Or is it really the Ming, even though it doesn't exist anymore as a political entity, that is owed the, the allegiance of the Korean? There are plenty of folks in mainland China when the Ming falled who weren't necessarily ready to accept the Qing regime. And you have painters going into the hills and scholars becoming depressed poets and what have you. I'm curious if any of those folks who didn't get with the program when it came to the Qing on the mainland had any interaction with the Koreans or potentially went there or were writing letters or what have you. Was there any dialogue between sort of Ming diehards on the mainland and in Korea itself? There was for a fairly uh, long period of time, particularly through literature. So the Joseon regime had to be very careful with this because if they went too far in being seen in practical terms as preparing to support some kind of Ming-related uprising in China, within the Qing Empire. The Qing was so much more powerful than what the Joseon was at that point. So they had to be careful with it. So instead, I think the best term to use for it is they sort of taunt the Qing. They erect temples to the memory of, of Ming emperors, including the, the last Ming emperor, the unhappy fellow who hanged himself in the back garden of the Gugong, of the Forbidden City in, in Beijing. One of the themes, actually, when we look at that period in the, in the book, is to figure out not so much that the Koreans did this. I think we can understand in terms of some of the stuff that we've talked about already here. But why did Qing 
accepted it, or even if they didn't accept it, they didn't decide to say, we had enough, we're going to march down to Seoul and get rid of these traitorous people and put someone else in charge. They never did that. And, and that's a really interesting question in terms of why that never happened. Yeah. And the idea of the Kangxi emperor just trying to, it's a, I think it's a real testament to them, the early yeah. Qing leaders, that they realized that Korea really had no choice and that there were better wars to fight and places to spend money on than bringing Korea under the heel. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's Kangxi's decision, first and foremost, though it is replicated by his son and grandson, of simply leaving well enough alone. That's the background here, that it just wasn't worth it to try to invade Korea and make sure that these people behave sensibly and with the right kind of coutume with regard to the Qing. As long as they were willing to confirm publicly that they're vassals of the great Qing, that was good enough. Even though they had to be, I, I talk a lot about the intelligence aspects of this, uh, there's a lot of surveillance going on both sides. Espionage is really important here, finding out what are the Koreans really planning to do and vice versa on the Korean side. The Koreans were actually much better at, at this than the Qing, figuring out where they have envoys in Beijing, which direction the emperor wants to go in on, on anything related to Korea. So it's a careful kind of dance, this. I, I think when you get into the 18th, early 19th century, the relationship of subservience to the Qing in any sort of outward form in Korea is pretty much set. But there remains these these forms of reluctance to fully accept the Qing as legitimate. I think this is actually one of the big interesting questions. So on one hand, there are the intellectuals who are sort of debating Neo-Confucianism and determining is Korea legitimate, is China legitimate? But then there's also this economic component around trade. And one of the parts that I think is quite interesting that you emphasize in the book are all these tributary missions between Seoul and uh, Beijing, which in some ways reflect the modern world. No, I think that's right. There is a striking modernity to parts of that. Uh, when you think about trade and trade negotiations and, and quotas and currency issues and all these kinds of things. So I, I, I do think that is important. It probably shows or should show us that some of these relationships between states in the early modern era in East Asia are actually, to some extent, connected, maybe not directly, but it, certainly in terms of topics and themes that they deal with, to our contemporary experience. Very often what we find is that they're, they're written out of that. When we think about the impact of early modernity on our current situation, we tend to think Europe and then late in the game, North America, and then decolonization in the late 20th century, and that's about it. While in reality, I think we could actually learn quite a bit by looking at early modern East Asia in these terms, not just with regard to trade, but with regard to interstate relationships overall. Absolutely. And then in these trade relationships, they're not just trading goods. One of the things that you emphasize is they're actually trading cultural products, uh, books, they're learning from each other. Let's talk a little bit about that side. What did these Korean delegations that were going to Beijing learn from the Chinese on these missions? So they wanted to, of course, get as much information as possible that they could make use of uh, in Korea or for Korean purposes. I already talked about the intelligence aspect of this. But in addition to that, there is more of a accepted, at least up to a point, a sense of information gathering that you have. They buy books, they buy whole libraries that they sometimes bring back to Korea, which would fetch on the private market in Korea tremendous prices 
because these kinds of products are really, really valued. They bring paintings, they bring furs, they bring a lot of things that you know, would fetch high prices in Korea. You know, this is the debate that's been going on among scholars for quite some time in terms of tribute. What does that actually mean in the, in the China-Korea relationship? And I would say that certainly in that relationship, these tribute missions from Joseon to the Qing, the period beyond to now, also have a definite commercial aspect to them. It's about buying and selling stuff. It's not just bringing whatever they needed to bring as tribute to the emperor or the imperial household. It's also that these become de facto trade missions. And the Koreans, of course, are struggling, as are the, the Qing, to try to keep this within some kind of framework so that at least if it is trade, then it's trade that's regulated at the state level. But of course, they fail in that. So you have lots of of private traders that attach themselves to to some of these missions going back and forth and do fantastic business as a result of that. Aside from furs, we also have Western influence, which is something that ends up being transmitted from, from particularly the Qing to the later Joseon era. I learned this in your book. I didn't know that Korea had its own version of the Taiping Rebellion. Can you talk a little bit about the early impact of Western ideas and in particular Christianity on, on the two states? This is, this of course, true in both places, but in terms of the impact from the outside, outside of the region, maybe particularly the religion, it is very striking for Korea, and for two reasons. I mean, the first reason is, of course, that this, these principles of, of Confucianism that were had been put in place and had been in place for quite a while, that they do not mix easily with Christian concepts of both of society, but especially about salvation and about the, the larger purpose of man's life on earth. So there is a conflict there which the Koreans, the Korean elites, took very seriously. So they tried to suppress Christianity. But at the same time, and this is the second point, as in parts of, of Qing China, certainly in Korea, Christianity started taking hold relatively early. And I think the reason for that is that the Joseon, when you get into the 19th century, in spite of, or perhaps even connected to, this insistence on Confucian virtues, is, has become a very unequal society. It's a slaveholding society. Many countries were slaveholding back in the 19th century, but the number of slaves was particularly high, at least at times, in Korea. But it's also very unequal for other groups of people. And I think it's often among these people that you find the first adherence to Christianity. And with a line that then leads right up to the uh, rebellions at the end of the 19th century, but perhaps even more importantly, into the 20th century, with the extraordinary influence that Christianity and Christian groups have had in Korea, very different from what you find, at least in most time periods, for any part of the surrounding sections of East Asia. Along the line, I'm, I'm curious about, there's also an indigenous movement for, for reform within Korea, the Shilak, or a practical knowledge or pra- pra- practical education kind of movement. I, I'm curious, what were the, the balance between sort of some of the indigenous thought to reform the Chosun era dynasty versus some of the external ideas around Christianity and ideas from the West? It's tough to catch that balance exactly. I think mm-hmm. When you get to the late 19th century, a lot of what's happening in Korea is again happening as a result of outside pressure. So outside pressure from the newly arrived Western imperialists, but also from a Qing empire that tries to translate its traditional relationship to Korea more into what 
you know, Westerners would see as a kind of colonial relationship. Now, they fail in doing that, but they, they certainly try in transforming the relationship over in that direction. Think of the relationship between France and Algeria, or, or Britain and Ireland, for that matter. And at the same time, of course, I, a Japan that is, again, becoming more and more influential on the Asian mainland. So it's the mixture of that outside pressure and the upheavals that then start from inside Korea itself that I think creates these sets of disasters that happen, at least from a Korean elite perspective, at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, when the country loses its independence and is gradually, after Japan gets the upper hand in its conflict with with the Qing, is gradually incorporated into Japan as a colonial uh, possession and in, in, in a form that almost no Korean would recognize. This is not the kind of relationship that existed with the Ming and the Qing in, in, in the past. This is a, a purely coercive relationship that that is initiated from the Japanese side. So let's do one more question on the 1900s. Obviously, change accelerated really fast. So we have the stability from you know 1392 when the Chosun dynasty gets started into the 1800s and 1900s. But the changes happen so quickly. The Japanese Empire gets started post the the Meiji Restoration. We go into World War One, World War Two. China obviously goes through a, a ton of transformations in the 1900s. How does Korea respond to all this change happening so quickly in in the early 1900s into the present day? I think the best answer to that is that it responds with great reluctance. The changes come on, as you say, very quickly from the middle part of the 19th century on. And I think the instinct, both for the political leaders, but also to some extent for ordinary Koreans, is to try to hold back on this. Not from the side of ordinary people, because they are necessarily overly enamored with the kind of social system that they have, but because they are frightened by what the consequences of dramatic change would be, particularly when it's imposed on them by the outside world. So I think this idea of a sort of deep-set Korean conservatism during that age, that is often held up. You know, it's not something that I believe in. I don't think Korean society inherently was more conservative than anywhere else. But you can see the reasons why people react in that way. The the fear of, again, having something imposed on them from the outside is not something that resonates well with, with Korean history. So I think that's the sort of default position all the way up to the Japanese colonization being concrete and when it's incorporated into part of Japan in 1910, where a lot of Koreans, especially younger Koreans, start transforming their own thinking in the direction, very similar actually to what happens in China in the early part of the 20th century. That disaster that has befallen us is of course because of Japanese policy, but it's also because we weren't prepared. We weren't strong enough to resist the Japanese encroachment and Japanese colonization. But there was something wrong with us as well. And we have to overcome that by building a new nation. And now they deliberately speak about nation, right? A new nation that is able to fend for itself, that is a modern nation that can claim its rightful, or if I may say righteous, place in the world and in the region. So this sort of supercharges Korean nationalism in the early 20th century. So we're going to... 
skip over a very long 20th century featuring some civil wars, the Korean War, the rise of the, the various Kims, as well as a lovely detail which you cited in which Hu Jintao apparently was annoyed he had too much work to watch the latest Korean soap operas. And I take it instead to some more zoomed out questions. I'm curious, Arn, you made the case at the beginning of this discussion that understanding this long-term history is valuable to the Korea-China context. Do you think that taking like a 600,000 thousand year lens is something relevant to more places than we give it credit for? Or is there something particular about the Korea-China relationship, given the fact that, as you argue, there, there may be more constants in the relationship between these two sort of nations, empires, what have you, than there may be with, I don't know, looking at, at Europe or another region? Yeah. You know, I mean, this is sort of hard to estimate. A little bit of apples and oranges in a way. I think there is more a certain sense of continuity in this relationship, in part because these two countries are neighbors, right? I mean, right next door to each other, than what you find in many other bilateral relationships overall. I do think that the weight of the past is particularly important in the relationship because of this ideological background that we have discussed earlier in this conversation. So this deep sense of these two countries having something in common, though they can't always define what that is, and that they are somehow more closely related to each other, in spite of being separate entities, than most other countries in the world are. I think that is a very strongly held belief among many Chinese and, 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 and many Koreans. The trouble begins, which, as it does in many cases, when one tries to define what that relationship actually consists of, except a, a common set of relations in the past. And I think that's part of what plagues Sino-Korean relations today, right? There is this sense of, of, of a certain level of cohesion, of, of, of contact, of links. But no one can quite figure out how that impacts in a direct sense what either side should do in the relations with the other today. So this is not the case of, if you study the past, you know, I'd love I could tell you otherwise, but I, if you study the past, it won't explain everything about today, never mind the future. But it will sensitize you, I think, in this particular relationship quite a bit to what some of the issues are in Sino-Korean relations. And that's in part, you know, why I constructed the book the way I did. But when you look at this entire 600-year period of history, we talked a little bit earlier about how Korea worked around the Chang, even though it was still supporting the Ming Dynasty. But one of the themes that I think comes out of the book is just that the longevity of Korea as an independent nation, um, despite it being in, quote-unquote, a bad neighborhood. I'm, I'm curious, what are the lessons there for the present day? What can we learn from history about how it survived, how it navigates all of its different foreign relations, and what that means for the future? I think the most important thing to recognize, particularly from an American perspective today, is that it's really hard to live next door to an empire. So Canadians and Mexicans have, of course, picked this up in our neighborhood. But for Korea, given the, the preponderance of power that exists on the Chinese side, it's, it's even more difficult than what it has been in North America, at least up to the relatively uh, recent past. So Koreans have always had to navigate this relationship with great caution. And what that means for today is that when Americans or, or, or Europeans are talking about the need to internationalize some of the conflicts that today surround Korea, to bring in others in order to resolve, for instance, the, the uh, North Korean nuclear issue. I think a lot, lot of Koreans, North and South, will first look at China before they look anywhere else. In spite of a long-standing alliance relationship between South Korea and the United States, 
I think it is very important for the people who are setting out our new relationship with the Koreas in, in, in the Biden administration to think about what this past means for people who are now making the calls both in Seoul and in Pyongyang. The sense of proximity and the sense of historical closeness to China, which is there, which doesn't always mean that they will accept whatever you know, today's rulers in, in, in Beijing want to stand for, but they will always keep an eye on China to a higher degree, I think, than what many people on this side recognize. And then one of the things I was curious about, obviously, a lot of this is elite history. We're talking about kings and, and emperors going back and forth, tributary missions. But then in, in the modern world, you talk a lot about soft power, that the Korean wave, former president Hu Jintao, you have a, an anecdote, complained that he was in too many bureaucratic meetings in his jobs, and he's missing out on the latest Korean soap operas, which I thought was uh, amusing. But now it's a much more complicated situation. Young Koreans have their own opinions about the future of China. In the Chinese case, young Chinese have different opinions about the North and the South that might not be in in perfect alignment with the the views of the foreign ministries of these countries. So I'm curious how the soft power relationship changes this compared to what we've seen historically. So I think there's always been a strong element of a soft power relationship going in both directions with regard to China and Korea. But I think it's probably more visible now that at any point for the past uh, 100 years or so. And part of that, of course, has to do with how, how, how culture spreads through new media and through various forms of, of interaction that would have been unknown in the past. But it's also, I think, and this is particularly true for China and for young Chinese, that they find South Korea to be an incredibly attractive society. I mean, attractive in terms of the opportunities that it has provided for its young people, not always the way young South Koreans would see this themselves, but certainly seen from a Chinese perspective, we would see that attractive in terms of film, in terms of music, in terms of you know the forms of cultural interaction that would spread to, to, to China through television, for instance. All of this makes a, a new setting in which, the, if you go back to the start of our story in the late 14th century, there's almost a reversal of cultural influences in terms of the direction that they go now between China and Korea. Now, Traditional Chinese culture is still very popular, in, especially in South Korea. But it's this newer wave of what Korea is seen as standing for through uh, the South that now has become very impactful in China. We don't know what the political consequences of that are going to be in the future. But it is quite striking that when I speak with younger Chinese, when I teach in China, or, or even when I speak with younger officials, that attractiveness... Of, of South Korea as a society comes through very clearly. It won't overwhelm the power politics aspects of this relationship, at least not anytime soon. But it is there as a resonance, which I think maybe particularly President Moon's administration in South Korea now have been willing to play on, have been willing to develop in terms of its relations with China. We don't know where that is, where that is going, but it's going to be a very important component, I think, of the China-Korea relationship in the future. Can you talk a little bit about how you see these historical echoes in the relationship between China and the DPRK? I think there is at the elite level, as we have seen recently, not least in Chinese President Xi Jinping's speech at the 70th anniversary for the Chinese intervention during the Korean War, there is a sense of cohesion. I mean, the idea that both of these countries are communist states, that they at least originally were based on the same kind of ideas, probably today stands stronger in certainly among a lot of people who work very closely, I think, with the current leadership in Beijing and what they have for some time. I think that simply comes out, this is my own interpretation of it, 
of the worsening relationship between China and the United States, that this is a way of, of then building, in part rebuilding, because that relationship has not always been good in the past, a link with North Korea that can be to China's strategic advantage in confronting the United States and its, its allies in the South. The reality of it, though, is that in spite of these attempts at setting out the relationship as being closer now than it has been for some time, there are big tensions, both in terms of politics, especially on the nuclear issue, but first and foremost, going back to the, the discussion about soft power, in terms of societies. Young Chinese who I know who've been to North Korea are horrified in what they find there. Even older people who remember the bad old days in China are saying this is just like what we got rid of back in the 1970s. The idea of presenting North Korea, except in strategic terms, as somehow connected to China, more connected to China than what the South is, comes up against, I think, quite big challenges in our own time. So I think from a Chinese perspective, this is not going to be easy to, to fix, particularly if there is a conflict on the Korean Peninsula, which would require China to give some kind of backing to North Korea. Because I think deep within the Chinese Communist Party, there is this sense that in spite of both countries calling themselves communist, the differences in terms of society and state between the two is now so enormous that it's very hard to imagine the two of them developing in ways that would serve each other's purposes. While quite a number of, of Chinese, including people who work in official positions in China, are saying that there is a great deal of complementarity between China and South Korea. So the question is, if we look at this long term, how will that impact practical policy? And that's what I'm trying to do in this book is to say, we don't know exactly how this will develop. So not even today, certainly not in the future, but alerting ourselves to the kind of weight and the kinds of importance that history, including more recent history, has in this relationship that helps us to prepare for whatever will happen there in the future. Adarn Westad, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk.
I'm a 